welcome everybody and as if you hadn't have guessed this is our halloween marketing horrors masterclass um, october the 31st we thought it would be a very apt day um, to take a look at some of those um, scariest marketing faux pas um, just like in the haunting towers of halloween we're going to take a look at take out our, our rusty tools and dissect some bone chilling blunders um, that become the stuff of nightmares uh, that invariably leave indelible scars on, on the marketers involved. Now, um, to be semi-serious for a second, we, we, we don't want this session simply to, to sort of revel in the misfortunes of others, um, because I think at one time or another, and, and when we were discussing this, we, 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 I think we found out we've all had a little gut-churning moment um, when you realise your best laying plans aren't really uh, turning out the way they are, and they're, they're, they're kind of the stuff of nightmares. So <clears throat> what we're gonna try and do today is get a little bit forensic on, on why marketing mistakes do happen, um, and turn into those horror moments for all of those involved. Um, importantly, I think we want to see what patterns emerge um, and hopefully hopefully provide um, some valuable insights uh, to ensure you don't get spooked in, in your future plans. So um, what we have amassed is an appropriately terrifying panel um, of the very most frightening and worst media works can offer today. So um, my name is Christian, uh, Christian Sarasola. I'm, I'm the group's digital PR director. Uh, also joining us today, we've got Becca Tredgett, who's our strategic planning director. Good morning, Becca. Good morning. I'm going to unmask like the um, yeah, <laughs> mask magician because I can't actually breathe and you can see how we're all going to have to. Yes, um, strategic <laughs> planning director. So my team's responsible for kind of insight, um, looking at a lot of data, looking at a lot of research and then forming that into recommendations and strategies for clients. Thank you. And as part of that team, uh, we've also got Anna Chadwick with us as well. Good morning, Anna. Morning, everyone. Yeah, as Becca mentioned, I do a similar role, work closely with Becca, so I'm looking forward to this one, absolutely. And last but by no means least, we have Andrew Bear, uh, Andrew Brown, um, who is the <laughs> creative director. Hello. That's all you get from me, hello. <laughs> Fantastic, yeah, I'm gonna have to take this off because uh, I'm, I'm struggling to even see the screen. Um, Listen, if you have got any um, thoughts or questions and you're listening live this morning, do pop any of your observations and questions into the Q&A chat. Um, thanks already for some of the, the lovely compliments that we've been receiving on our, our, our get-ups this morning. Um, and, and perhaps give us your own stuff of nightmares, anything that you've kind of spotted that you feel were, would fit nicely into um, the theme of, of, of this chat this morning. Um, I, I think, sadly, for, for all of us marketers, there were, there were many to choose from. Um, but what we've picked are a few that we think um, underline some of the examples of why uh, things can go wrong in marketing and, and see if we can spot any commonalities with with some of those examples that we will take a, a slightly zombie-like walk through this morning. Um, <laughs> so let, let's crack on. I'm going to ask the guys for their thoughts on some of these common mistakes first off and how they manifest themselves into essentially into bad comms or bad marketing. Um, and one thing I think we'd spotted when planning this was was brands, brands excuse me, who who neglect to think about their audience and, and, and what can happen when they forget who they're talking to. Becca? Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's something we're really passionate about at MediaWorks is really thinking about audiences and placing audiences at the heart of that. And I think, like you say, Christian, when you kind of lose sight of the audience, that's sometimes when you can go quite astray. Um, and I think um, one of the biggies, probably one of the most, I guess, recent ones um, that, you know, made not just kind of marketing news, but really hit headlines in kind of consumer and um, broadcast news was um, centre parks over the Queen's funeral. So um, they kind of announced that, you know, like many establishments or many kind of places, they would be planning to close on the day of the Queen's funeral uh, to allow their workers or people that worked at centre parks to go and watch the funeral. Um, but obviously that means that everyone that was staying there over that weekend would have had to vacate. I think it was on the, was it on the Monday morning and then Monday, come back yeah, right. on the Tuesday. Um, so you can imagine the kind of uproar of that, that people were kind of saying, well, I might have travelled. There were people that, um, I mean, let's be honest, we all know how expensive centre parks is as well. But there are people that had booked there for two weeks, you know, for two weeks. And um, so we're having to kind of uh, leave halfway through their holiday 
um, and come back. And I think, um, you know, that's a really classic case of a company not thinking about and not thinking about what is that audience experience and what is the impact going to be on our audience. And I think, you know, a lot of people criticise them as well as it felt kind of a bit tokenistic. Um, I found a new acronym I like, PDM, Public Displays of Morning. Um, they were criticised a lot for that and, you know, not... Um, consulting staff as well so like I said you know it went into all of the broadcast media made a lot of big headlines trending on Twitter and obviously they came out and decided that um, they would reverse that decision because it would be quite ridiculous to send everyone home for 24 hours when they're on holiday um, but I think what we then saw was that um, their crisis comms didn't quite go as smoothly after that because even um, even after they announced that you know people could stay, they could kind of stay at centre parks. They then um, got caught out on Twitter by, and I do feel bad because having been a community manager before myself and doing it, someone responded to a tweet um, from centre parks, um, not not well worded, basically saying that people could stay at centre parks but they would have to stay within their lodges and they would be confined to their lodges. Um, and I think that's, again, um, an example of how important it is when you're looking at crisis comms for everyone to be on the same page, everyone to be really fully briefed and um, how important it is to think about wording as well, because, you know, I think that wasn't um, the way that that was worded from that community manager uh, made it sound like that, but that wasn't actually the essence of what they were trying to say. So I think for me, it's, you know, firstly, thinking about that audience experience and secondly, making sure that, um, you know, when you're briefing teams on crisis comms, that it is really, really clear it's um, stress tested and everyone kind of knows what we're saying. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, it's an interesting um, example that Centre Parks thing, and it, it was. Yeah, it, it's kind of it is held up as one of those big examples of when things go wrong, um, and and kind of in, in, in PR, we, we sort of often hear this this kind of commentary around situations like this, where lots of lots of people sort of from the outside looking and going, "Oh, that's bad PR," or "That's mm -hmm. terrible PR." Um, and I, I, I sort of tend to get all agitated because it sounds like it's, you know, it's, it's kind of the PR person's fault that, that Centre Parks decided to sort of firstly shut down their park and then sort of their, their concession was to make it sort of like a low security prison um, in response. Um, and I, I, I think generally kind of what we we find here is that this, it's bad business and it's bad business decisions and bad decision making that then leads to the kind of the bad PR um, and, and the subsequent negative pub publicity. I, I think, you know, having comms people at the heart of important decisions like that, um, you know, you know, I, I think a comms person in that situation would and should be the, the eyes and the ears of the customer and, and, and kind of just sense check decisions like that to say, look, you know, I don't, I don't think that's going to play out too well, that we have to shut the parks. I get why we're doing it. And I, I think sort of reading into the, the, the sort of the centre park thing, it was that they were sort of feeling very responsible to their, their staff. And it was seems like it was a decision based largely on, on kind of um, allowing their staff to, to kind of um, mourn appropriately on that day um but we we, we do see it a lot I, I kind of always use the, the sort of the restaurateur and knowledge analogy there where um you know you get a restaurant who's getting a, a sort of a bit of a bad press and they, they sort of hire a pr person to to add some sheen into that and it's like kind of you know what are we going to do and i'm like well kind of the best thing you can do is actually hire a chef that can cook your steaks properly um mm -hmm. that will solve all the pr problems you've got it's not a pr problem it's a business problem um, mm -hmm. And yeah, we see see quite a lot of that thing going on where bad business decisions then lead to kind of, um, you know, negative press or, or, or negative uh, communications. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, Becca, I know you've got another example here as well, haven't you? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, like you said, Christian, um, we don't want to turn it into a bashing of other brands, but we just have <laughs> quite a few examples of this. But I think it's one that um, actually that I don't think, um, it's not one that I'd heard a lot about. about. It's um, a bit of an old one, but I think it um, demonstrates why it's super, super important to be really up with consumer sentiment and attitudes of audiences. And, you know, especially what's going on, um, you, you know, as kind of macro trends as well. And this is, I'm going back to 2012 um and a campaign by huggies um and their campaign was really focused on that huggies are so good that even dads can use them <laughs> um, so 
you know, <laughs> obviously see the issues with that straight away that, you know, even though I'm talking about 10 years ago, there's still very much been that shift to um, dads being an equal caregiver, not that stereotype of, um, you know, a useless dad that can't do anything. Um, and I think, you know, reading into this, that wasn't necessarily um, a huggy sentiment. It was more about coming at it from a comedy angle. Um, but I do think that, you know, if there had been a bit more kind of consumer research and kind of um, understanding of that, um, even looking at some kind of broader data that looks at, you know, how many single dads there are, how many dads are now the primary caregiver, um, that could have been very easily avoided. Um, and it attracted quite a lot of attention. There was actually a change.org petition to get the ad pulled, um, which they did end up doing. And to be fair to them, they kind of went out with a public apology. Um, like I said, talked about how it wasn't necessarily the sentiment of the campaign to kind of take the piss out of dads. It was more about to show the performance of the product um, and then kind of rework that campaign, really more kind of highlighting the USP and the kind of um, performance of Huggies. So I think, um, again, like I said, that's for us where you really need to take the audience to the heart of it and really understand their attitudes and their thinkings and their feelings um, around the category. And I know Anna will kind of talk through how we do that. Yeah, absolutely. I think sort of the common theme in this, you know, and something we always guide clients to move away from is there is no one size fits all it's not one brand approaches a crisis communication in that way so it's going to work for everybody you know it's a in that center parks example it's a very different story looking at a holiday park where you're going to stay versus for example a restaurant where you may have booked it's much less disruptive to move away from a restaurant booking than it would be from a holiday park booking for example and I think that's where we're always keen to tell clients and you know communicate as media works that it, everything needs to be taken in the context of your market, the context of your business, the context of your day to day goings on as well. And that's where this audience plays a large part in it. We're all aware, again, sort of coming back to that Huggies example, we're all aware of stereotypes. We're all, you know, aware of, as Becca said, macro trends and where we're trying to move away from that and something that potentially in in silo in the context might have seemed like quite a humorous good idea can fall completely wrong if you don't understand your audience's perception and how people are going to react to that and engage with that so we would always be telling clients you know you want to come away from that one size fits all we want to understand our audience yes generally we want to understand you know where's their challenges where's their pain points where their attitudes held but where do they function in relation to what else is going on in the market so Common examples we'll talk to clients about at the minute and that we'll touch on this a little bit later as well as things like the cost of living crisis and the energy crisis. And you may operate in a market that isn't hugely sort of involved in that, is not potentially a real driver of that or a hindrance to that. But how do we how do we make sure we're communicating in line with those external pressures that may be causing somebody to react differently than they may have in a different circumstance, even when you're you know, business offering, service, whatever it may be, may seem slightly disjointed from that. And it's about how do we keep audience at the centre of everything and how do we pull all those different factors in together to be sure that these sorts of ill reactions don't come about too commonly. Do you think there's a bit of a, a feeling at the moment that um, brands aren't going for comedy in mm, the campaigns yeah. and comedy is super powerful? Yeah. Do you, do you think there's any relation to kind of brands just being scared of yeah. somebody because it, it, it tends to pick on something or somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And I read quite an interesting report um, by GWI not too long ago, and it's about sort of crisis fatigue and how some of the younger generations are going through this crisis fatigue where it's just at the minute feeling like it's one crisis after another and we're feeling like we can't come out the other side. And what came out of that is that actually people do want to approach that with humour and they almost want to see humor and brand communications to try and move away from this sort of societal doom and gloom that is happening at the minute that we can't avoid and it's interesting I do think you're exactly right Andrew I think there's an potentially an unwillingness in brands to take the risk in case they don't work as anticipated but there's humongous opportunity there if you can ensure that you're doing it respectfully in line with your audience um, attitudes and what may motivate them or challenge them as well. 
I think also, I think, um, you know, we probably have moved away from brands going for humour, but I do think it's also not even to do with the context of what's happening, but so many brands get backlash for just being a bit shit at being funny. It's, you know, you're in a world now where, you know, it used to be that you do a TV advert and you never really hear what anyone thought about it, apart from maybe if you did a bit of link testing. But now we're in a world where if you do something that's rubbish, everyone is going to tell you about it. So I think that not only the sentiment of society, but just how consumers have a more of a voice in advertising and what worst for an agency that if you put a TV ad out and your client sees everyone on Twitter talking about how unfunny you are. Yeah. I think there's that kind of risk as well from a creative point of view. It's um, a joke, Christian. Sorry? That was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> None of them would be repeatable on this podcast, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> interesting. Um, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I was reading something yesterday. I think it might have been in campaign, maybe the drama, I forget which, but they they were predicting a return to humour for this year's Christmas mm. ads. Um, I, I think sort of we, we went from COVID into kind of cost of living and, and kind of lots of ads were kind of very purpose-driven, very meaningful, very humble, very pared back. Um, to As you had said, Anna, it's kind of, it was context, right? It was like kind of around their surroundings. Mm. Like it didn't feel yeah. like a time to be frivolous and, and kind of expansive. Um, but well, actually, Tesco, did, Tesco got into trouble, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they did. Oh, um, they were trying to be funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, again, the example of not that funny. I mean, if you want the classic, classic, funny, good Christmas advert, the Muppets Warburton one, brilliant. There we go. Right. Um, if in doubt, hire a Muppet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and we have four on the panel today. Um, so uh, there's my jug. Um, so yeah, no, look, it was it was interesting that kind of that that fatigue thing, Anna, that you talked about there is like kind of it was inter- interesting piece yesterday that kind of there was this prediction that kind of um, ads ads are far more likely this time to be sort of a bit more lighthearted, trying at least to be funny. They may mm-hmm. fail. Um, yeah. So that'll be interesting to see what comes out in the coming weeks for those Christmas ads. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, guys, we've got a couple more examples we wanted to get into that do, again, sort of show that people, uh, these brands have maybe sort of not not thought very well about their their audience, but um, perhaps more so found themselves in that absolutely terrifying place of being in that kind of horrid marketing bubble. Yeah. Um, Talk us through those. Yeah, I think um, obviously we couldn't do this session without talking about the Pepsi ad could we Mm. um it is you know when we look at recent years the number one um i guess marketing faux pas and um if you've never seen that and i would be very surprised if you haven't it was a few years ago um you know right at the heart of kind of black lives matter movement where pepsi went out with an advert which featured um, Kendall Jenner, one of the Kardashians, um, on the protest front line, and um, she is um, handing a police officer a can of Pepsi, the kind of um, insinuation that Pepsi brings peace, I guess. Um, <laughs> and um, where I'm do we start? Just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> where do we start with it? Um, I think you know two things um, really core to think about. Uh, firstly, Kendall Jenner, as far as to my knowledge, doesn't have any particular history of kind of social um, advocacy or anything from that point of view. So probably not the greatest use of that um, brand ambassador having someone kind of authentic doing that. Um, but then also Pepsi as a brand um, don't necessarily have a history of that either. So it was very kind of tokenistic. Um, the ad was pulled. Um, Pepsi apologised. Um, they actually said or actually came out that their sales hit an all-time low in the years following that. Um, so you can kind of see the impact of that. And I think what's even more interesting is when you read about this from kind of a marketing and industry point of view that um, – God, this is going to sound really bitter, like I've got a chip on my shoulder. (laughs) But um, Pepsi, uh, before that, had taken pretty much all of their advertising in-house. 
Um, so they have a centralized marketing team. They weren't using any um, agencies. The thinking behind that um, being that they could be much more reactive. They could get a lot more content out. Um, I think, you know, what you can see at the downside of that is that um, you have got a team of people that are creating um, content or um, advertising that are very much in that brand bubble. Um, yeah. I think, you know, what's really, really important is, yes, we are all in that marketing brand bubble, um, but making sure that, again, coming back to that audience insight that, you know, you're talking to people that aren't in that. Um, you know, even if you've got an agency, you know, getting their opinion on it, making sure that, um, you know, you're getting different points of view, um, talking to consumers. And I think, you know, probably what that one was, was a bit of a victim of trying to do something very quickly, trying to jump on, I guess, what was considered a kind of trend or a cultural movement at that time. Um, and, you know, getting that very, very wrong. So I think, again, very, very important to really be thinking outside of that bubble, really be thinking about audiences um, and getting involved with, you know, you know, for that, they could have gone out and talked to community groups, protest groups, you know, people in those kind of worlds and really understood, um, you know, their kind of viewpoint on it. Um, so a bit of a fail and actually Martin Luther King's um, daughter came out and tweeted about it and said if only daddy had known about Pepsi um, <laughs> um, so yeah it did it did get absolutely ripped to shreds and also it had that commercial impact as well that kind of sales dropped so um, yeah. yeah not a great example from Pepsi no I think as well sort of building on the overarching recommendation within that is ultimately as you said Becca it is that social listening it's that understanding of the sentiment they've potentially gone in in that market and bubble as you say and put this concept together without actually really digging into where's the sentiment around this topic what's what's the generic findings from social listening saying and is that something we can naturally as the brand with said brand ambassador target or challenge and I think building on that with another example where there is just potential benefit from having that social listening and understanding who is at the center of that crisis whatever it may be that issue and how can we best support them and I think a, a one that's recent enough um was Eon and obviously in the energy sector providing energy to a lot of people we've seen sort of a bit of an energy crisis again the cost of living crisis and people are looking for ways to strip back that energy spending and um, they had come out and um gave people the really practical advice of just turn your heating down and that'll support you with saving energy but what they tried to do and what got deemed tone deaf as a result was that they were giving quite patronizing should we say advice to people when it was in a real crisis state and these were people they were potentially communicating to people who couldn't afford to put it on in the first place so it wasn't around just turning it down and they did create you know they obviously came off the back of it and gave out these public apologies but I think where this sort of reached its crisis point within a market in Blunder was that they sent out a pair of socks to 30,000 households with the advice of you know, like just put the extra pair of socks on and you'll be able to turn your heating down. But I think one thing that sort of extends this even further was that it was done under the veil of sort of reducing a carbon footprint. And it was around, you know, they were trying to bring the environment into it to ultimately, you know, join that conversation. I think it show, it's a prime example of where you're potentially trying to marry up too many conversations in one and it becomes disjointed and it doesn't land well. And it becomes a bit, as I said, you know, tone deaf, trying to marry up people unable to potentially put their heating on because of cost pressures and the energy crisis with actually they're doing it because they want to reduce their carbon footprint just isn't what needed to happen and I think you know they'd sent out the I don't know if anyone's ever seen them but they sent out polyester socks and I had a picture of like a sun in the world smiling on it and um it was alongside the advice of turning your heating down to reduce those carbon emissions I think added to it and it was you know this is a bit sad for them it probably couldn't have come at a worse time because only a couple of weeks before Ovo Energy had sent out letters to their sort of you know households theirs um, urging them to try cuddling a cat or doing star jumps to keep warm rather than putting their heating on or they'd also um, suggested trying eating hearty bowls of porridge or doing a hula hoop contest to try and stay warm so again it's just a bit of you know ill communication should we say and potentially again not understanding that audience 
um, priority, not understand who is it you're actually speaking to and not understanding the social sentiment aligned with the topic and making sure that you're not coming across completely tone deaf and giving people like unfair treatment, I would say, and unfair advice that isn't going to marry up with the reality of the situation as well. And ultimately, as an energy provider, you would want them to be most aware of the situation and the severity of said situation and not potentially be trying to use it as a bit of a market and jump point as well. Mm, interesting. Thank you. Um, Andrew, we, we, we haven't heard from you yet. And I know when we were sort of discussing um, what examples we were going to bring to the table, um, the, the the issue of um, brand launch and rebrand and, and kind of new logos and things cropped up quite a lot. Um, certainly as, as, as a gentleman of a certain age, I, I remember kind of lots of people asking what, what Lisa Simpson was doing to Bart Simpson for the London 2012 logo as, as, as one example. But I know you've got some examples of where sort of rebrands are, are, are a really dangerous kind of area where things can go wrong. Yeah, there's, a, 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 again, another classic a, example uh, from which has got a lot of press and is in a lot of books. And uh, if you want to go and look at what happened, you can you can very easily uh, find it online. And that was Tropicana. So in, in 2009, they decided to, to change the packaging for the US orange juice. Uh, uh, and the... the Revenue before the packaging change was seven hundred million dollars a year. Lot of orange juice, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, after after they changed their new packaging, sales immediately dropped by twenty percent. That's twenty percent is a lot. Seven hundred, anyway, it's a lot. Within two months, so they lost thirty million dollars by changing their their packaging. So, so what they did was change it back quickly as possible but it takes a while and you've lost a lot of money so yeah go and look up what the what the difference is in what they did work because it's really interesting thinking of uh just, i always whenever i see adverts and things like that i always immediately try and uh, uh, my mind goes to like the pitch or the meeting when mm -hmm. presenting the creative or what have you and this is this is great because you kind of you can imagine all the way through all the steps of a rebrand. It doesn't happen lightly. People don't just make something up and put it on the packaging. It goes through enormous processes with loads of stakeholders. Everybody's interested. Um, and if you, they basically they change. If you, if you look at the packaging, it's kind of cleaner. It's kind of fresher. It's more modern. The typography is more legible. But to all intents and purposes, there's lots of things there for people to sit around nodding. I think the other aside for uh, branding is it often ends up being a committee that gets to the end point just based on like who's who's the loudest or most important people and what they think is good. <laughs> so, in a nutshell, they trampled all over the brand elements that they owned and had any value. So, they changed the logo. If you know Tropicana, it's got got an orange on the front with a straw in it. Got rid of that. Stuck a lovely fresh glass of orange juice on the front. The only thing they seemed to keep was the colouring. But the colouring of Tropicana is white, orange, and green. And guess what? The colouring of every single packet of orange juice. <laughs> in the world is white, orange, and green. So in a lot of ways, they took what had been a premium brand, and it does kind of look a bit old-fashioned, but they mm. took what had been, a and, and, you know, they must have been market leaders, uh, a premium successful brand, and they turned it into something that basically looked like own label. Mm. So especially in a world where own brands are, based, are emulating the brand cues of that market leader, they just lost anything that was distinctive about it. And pe people then just didn't recognize it, so they didn't buy it. Mm. Just, you know, you, if you know anything about marketing, you know that, A, nobody's looking at your advert, and B, when they get to the shelf, they're, go, they're going, oh, I need some orange juice, uh, and, and they're gone. Um, and so they paid the, a really hefty price for it. Um, <coughs> but I, I think... It is a weird one, though, because I remember when I first saw that example and before even reading about it, I kind of went, oh, it looks quite nice. Didn't look that yeah. different. Go and look it up. It does. Yeah, 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 you, know, yeah. you, can, you can see every single meeting along the way where yeah, 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 they yeah, tested exactly. it in market research again. Yeah. 
depends what questions you ask. Does yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. That was nice. Do you like? Yeah, it does. It is. Like, it's got a nice little orange lid that's kind of cute. But and I it, like it. Kind of doesn't. I don't know. I look at that side by side and go, it's good, a million miles away. But I guess yeah, you have to think about it in the context of you are her own label brands of orange juice that all look the same. And and I, and I think what's you know if we're going to take some learnings off this and the, the things to learn, it's easy to look at. A, packaging redesign and go well yeah they changed what the, what the whole product looked like and something happened but I think it's worth considering every brand has these core brand signifiers and and how you use those in your advertising is let alone your packaging is really important so brand misattribution is a really common thing and you, you know, like I say, people aren't really paying very much attention when they're looking at your ad. They see your ad, but they don't remember who it's for. Or worse, and again, amazingly commonly, uh, they think it's for your closest competitor. So not only are you spending ad money that is a bit of a waste because they can't remember who it was for, it's actually like a double waste because it's it's supporting other people in your, in your market. So even if you... To come from that, you can sit there going $30 million is a lot of money, isn't it? But if you have a £1 million ad spend and you waste t- even just 10 or 20% of it on misattribution, that is a lot of money down the drain, isn't it? So, mm. so yeah, I think, I think even considering your distinctive brand elements uh, as as people talk about the colours and the logos and the fonts and mm. the like, but it's really, it, really, really important, and it makes an enormous amount of difference to uh, to um, how much value is in your advertising. I've got, I've got a little pop quiz for you as well. Depends whether you've read the notes. Um, <laughs> sure. In in, in two thousand and one, a very popular company had a, a two million pound rebrand and changed their name to Consignia. Ten points for anybody who can. Can people do it in the chat? Ten yeah, points. Yeah. For I was about to say, company. or in the Q Q and A. Should we send our masks to the winners? <laughs> oh, that's a surprise, and you got it straight away. I wonder if people are now furiously googling the answers here. Now it's like no cheating. Come on now. You could give people the new uh, yeah. name. Yeah, so so it was Royal Mail. Royal Mail in 2001, kind of on privatisation, decided to change the name to Consignia. And there's a whole, you know, it's like consign where it's really, it's really, you give something really precious and it's like insignia. And they had all these reasons and what have you. And what Royal Mail failed to realise was that they don't really own that brand. Mm. The people own the Royal Mail brand and is very close to their hearts. And uh, the public told them in no uncertain terms and they just changed it back and added PLC at the end. Yeah. <laughs> very Two million pounds to add to PLC yeah. to the end. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sort of wondering there, sort of with, with both examples a little bit, sort of if it ain't broke, right? Um hmm. I, I, I wonder, guys, uh, are there any other instances where we, we think the accusation may be that the brands have, have sort of just been trying to be a bit too clever mm. um, with, with with what they're trying to do and therefore then miss the mark? Yeah, definitely. I think there's lots of brands. And I think as it kind of um, you feel like you've got to do new stuff, you do sometimes come up with things that are a bit clever. And kind of my favourite examples of this are um, Burger King, who often get it very, very right, but Mm. sometimes get it very, very wrong. Um, So a couple of examples that we've got. My favourite one is that they ran a – it was kind of um, at the start of the adoption of smart home assistants when people, you know, had an Alexa or started getting an Alexa or – uh, a Google Home in the house, and they ran a TV advert um, that um, had a OK Google prompt in it, which meant that everyone's um, anyone that had a Google Home kind of there, um, it responded to that, and it asked um, Google to read out uh, the Wikipedia entry about Whopper burgers. How really clever, doesn't it? <laughs> like, 
they went in, they edited it a month before to talk about how great Whopper Burgers were, um, you know, what a fun thing that we can get people to go, oh, God, I just, you know, got my Google Home going. Um, what obviously didn't come up in their kind of, I guess, stress testing was that we can all go and edit that Wikipedia entry. So cue lots and lots of people editing that Wikipedia entry to say that Whoppers included cyanide or they were the worst <laughs> burgers ever. Or my personal favourite, they were made out of 100% children meat, child meat. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect for Halloween. Um, so you ended up having this kind of... And what seemed like a really clever idea, and to be fair, it, you know, it's a nice idea, but it was a bit too clever and it hadn't been tested properly. Um, but I do think kudos to Burger King because they do um, fail fast and for every fail they've had, they've had something that they've done brilliantly. But mm -hmm. um, Anna's got another example of maybe where they could have thought about things a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and Please clarify, but this is not a Burger King bashing. We do like <laughs> Burger King. Yeah, they yeah. are... Uh, but but as, as Becca's, yeah. yeah, as uh, Becca's mentioned, there is just a couple of good examples of where there's potentially been a lack of um, challenging in a room and potentially not looking outside of sort of that campaign running completely smoothly. And I think this second example just really hones in on sort of the importance of understanding your channel and where is best to potentially communicate a brand message. And I think what's interesting with this story is it did not land in the UK, but because of the channel that deployed it in the US, it actually worked much better. So I assume most people will have heard of it, but it was obviously Burger King's Women Belong in the Kitchen tweet, which unsurprisingly went down in absolute flames. So the main tweet that they put out was nothing more than just women belong in the kitchen. And unsurprisingly it did cause uproar along among millions of sort of twitter users um with people quote tweeting that single tweet replying to that tweet and unsurprisingly sort of prompting an outroar uh, an uproar sorry of outrage from those users and almost to make it worse they did tweet it on international women's day which didn't potentially <laughs> land as as expected but Ouch. what the yeah <laughs> what the purpose of the tweet was and you can completely understand the logic was that humorous tease to promote their new campaign for cooking scholarships for female employees but unsurprisingly using twitter as a platform them tweets can very quickly become detached and be taken in silo and potentially completely misconstrue the message so the first tweet obviously women belong in the kitchen was then followed up with a second tweet that said, if they want to, of course, yet only 20% of chefs are women and we're on a mission to change the gender ratio. But unfortunately, many of those Twitter users never actually got past the first tweet. Um, I read that actually the engagement with the first tweet was 527% higher than that second follow-up tweet. So unsurprisingly, the message was completely misconstrued. And people were saying it was no more than a validation of sexism rather than trying to empower female chefs. So it didn't go down well. It didn't work as expected for Burger King. And unsurprisingly, they then had to spend the rest of the day sort of issuing explanations, apologies, and then in the end just decided the tweet was better removed. So it all went. But the bit that I really wanted to sort of point out in this is actually that the campaign completely worked in the US, but they did it in print. So they had a big headline that said women belong in the kitchen, but ultimately the follow-up was right underneath it. And no audience could intercept between the headline and the follow-up. Obviously, you can't account for someone who would just glance at the headline and potentially misconstrue it. But it shows how the, you know, the viral nature of a channel like Twitter slash X now or um, TikTok and whatnot, virality is amazing and can really support brands and help them get out there, but can also take a message and it can run completely the other way mostly out of the brand's control as well and sort of builds on what Becca mentioned earlier around sort of people, you know, your consumers, your customers now have a larger voice than ever and they can get a hold of something and they can completely whip it up into a different context. And while, you know, there was a lack of potential challenge in Burger King in doing that, you can understand where their logic had come from and where they tried to deploy that. But I think ultimately just hones in on the importance of understanding the channel and what can happen on that channel and how quickly something can go from nothing to a hundred and making sure you've almost got a plan in place for that and how you can, you know, build on that as well. So I think you know, 
the key message there is sort of understanding where is best to communicate that brand message. As we say in, you know, many of these podcasts to align with your audience and where they're sitting and where they're consuming content, but also in a place where it it can avoid being misconstrued or it can avoid being sort of sent off in a completely other direction. I did want to say and sort of moving away from Burger King, obviously there we're discussing sort of the viral nature of brand communications and how things going viral can support with brand growth, brand awareness. And I think there is some examples and I love looking into, you know, the examples where brands have potentially produced something so opinion causing so irritating that it's actually completely worked in their brand awareness is second to none like I know there'll be people listening today who absolutely hate the meerkats associated with compare the meerkat and now they've brought in I can't even remember is he a wallaby the new host is they've brought in a a third person who shrunk the meerkats washing or something I seen the other day but they are now so synonymous with that brand and for something that has potentially caused virality in terms of people being so just infuriated by them is actually supported them and having this really consistent, really strong brand message the whole way through that people, it now causes them a jump to mind for people. Equally, the Go Compare man, I don't know why we're only sort of talking in comparison sites, but the Go <laughs> Compare, a direct challenge, you know, he was equally as infuriating, but you look now, I don't know the exact number of years, but it's got to be at least 10, I would say, 10 years down the line. He's still going strong and he's still well associated with the brand and supports that brand recall ultimately. So there is an element of, you know, and I don't recommend anyone goes out and makes tweets anything like Burger King to get by, to try and get that virality. But it shows how sort of conversation can be good conversation. You know, dare I say it, Christian, in the PR world, any conversation's good conversation. Definitely not. But... You know, there is examples of where brands have done it so bad, as in irritating, it's actually good and it's made for really strong brand recall and really strong brand awareness as well. Yeah, I think it kind of goes, you know, Andrew was talking about having those assets being really consistent with them. Yeah. Go compare ones that have used that guy for years and years. He was also a master, um, celebrity master chef as well recently mm. yeah I didn't realize that oh and they kept That's making obviously it's BBC they kept making like alluded jokes about it and I was really <laughs> confused like what they're talking about go compare um, <laughs> yeah, it is um I think as well yeah it goes back to that being really really consistent with something and sticking yeah. with it and making sure you're reinforcing and reinforcing and reinforcing absolutely thank you guys um we, we, we're gonna finish on a bit of an and finally um so it's time for, for Becca and Anna to sit back and tuck into their Halloween treats because Andrew's going to tell a story for us of possibly the biggest marketing horror story of all. Um, we considered Pepsi and their giveaway of a fighter jet, but you can go and watch that on Netflix. Um, <laughs> so what we're going to talk about, and I think it's probably the one that everybody goes to and says, oh, God, yeah, the great Hoover giveaway. Andrew. <laughs> Take it yes, away. The, the ultimate cautionary tale, mm. and and it was a funny one looking at this and going, "Oh, everybody knows this story," but actually, the story is great. So, picture this: it was a dark and stormy Wednesday night back in early 1992. The vacuum cleaner brand Hoover had arguably that golden dream that every brand wants for their brand name to be so synonymous with the actual act of using it. Uh, So today, like getting an Uber, I guess. Uh, Back back in those dark times before the internet and mobile phones, right, no one vacuumed the house. They hoovered up. And and interesting that you still get people saying, like, uh, people who eat fast hoover up their food. This is powerful, was the brand. So don't underestimate the brand Hoover. Even like probably looks a bit naff now. Um, so bear in mind the the nearly a hundred year old brand, even at this point, arguably one of, if not the most trusted brand in the UK. Certainly old and wise enough to know better. So dark and stormy night. The <laughs> department sat around in their ivory tower, rain lashing down outside. Dire warnings on the charts around them. Dwindling sales, a gloomy recession. In the last five years, profits have fallen from 147 million to 74 million. 
they've got a 50% market share in the UK, but it's in danger of going down. Uh, cut to an enormous manufacturing plant and warehouse, and warehouse in Merthyr Tydfil. Boxes pile on boxes, think Indiana Jones style, as hoovers fly off the production line only to go nowhere. The marketing department are desperate. They're out of ideas when out of nowhere up pops this tiny travel agency called JSI. They too were looking down the gloomy end of the recession. And just as Hoover were looking for a, a way to offload, oh, they've got they need to get rid of this cheap stock. The warehouse is filling up. They've got so many vacuum cleaners, they don't know what to do with it. Hoover's. Uh, so too, JSI needed to shift some cheap flights. So they pitched the ill-fated idea, a sales promotion where anyone spending over £100 on a Hoover will get two round trip it, trip it, tickets to a destination in Europe. So win-win. And to be fair, initially, it worked-worked. Hoover weren't stupid. They knew if ev everyone who bought the product took the offer, they would be in trouble. So they kind of came up with this really complicated mechanic of buy the Hoover, cut out a thing, mail it off, get something back, pick which desk out one of three destinations you go to send that back. You've got 14 days to do this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They kind of built in this, this convoluted uh, way of doing it <clears throat> um, to, to, to kind of to make it work. Uh, they advertised really heavily in newspapers and on television. And remember, that is pretty much the entire media of the day. Bear in mind. <laughs> uh, by the end of the year, Hoovers were flying off the shelves. Sales projections were back on track. The marketing department were lauded as heroes, paraded through the streets of Merthyr Tidville in a ticker tape parade, the saviours of the recession. They didn't, they did, that didn't really happen. I made that one. But then disaster. <laughs> Hoisted by their own petard, Hoover doubled down on the promotion and offered two return flights to the USA for the price of a £100 Hoover. It's getting scary. Even warned by a risk management company who refused to offer coverage, Hoover thought they knew best and went ahead with the promotion. Initially, everything looked great. Bear in mind, you're in the middle of a... a, a biting recession and department stores all of a sudden look like scenes from a zombie apocalypse as shoppers clamor over each other to buy the cheapest hoover they can find the hoover warehouse is empty and soon the factory is and this is true put on seven day shifts churning out new hoovers to keep up with demand but as entries to the promo went wild the horrible truth begins to dawn. Ten times more people redeemed the offer than Hoover anticipated. Now, Hoover make £30 profit or made £30 profit on each vacuum cleaner that they sold for £100. And here they were paying £300 for 600,000 redeemed flights. <laughs> so every Hoover that they sold and they were selling a lot of Hoovers, was costing the company £570. So all they although they generated, the promo generated £30 million in sales, it cost them £100 million to fulfil. So what happened? Hoover began to do everything they could to refuse people the offer. They said they'd filled the form in wrong, they ignored the post, they claimed people had missed the 14-day deadline, they said letters had gone missing, and... Again, remember, pre-internet, right? But everybody's talking about it. Soon it's, it was discovered that no one was getting a free flight. Over 4,000 people pre-internet, no Facebook, formed a pressure group, no, no change.org, no petition.com, put together a pressure group, all done by mail. One man, a guy called Dave Dixon, 42-year-old guy called Dave Dixon. <laughs> this is great. Took a delivery van hostage <laughs> and held it in his... He parked his, his uh, coach in front of it and wouldn't let them have the delivery van back <laughs> until they gave him his holiday. <laughs> Did he get it? This, 
I don't, I don't know. Can we find him on Facebook? Let's find Dave Dixon. Somebody get me Dave Dixon. Um, but but what you know, this is a story of Hoover losing millions of pounds in an ill-fated. It's remembered as a story of Hoover losing millions of pounds in an ill-fated marketing promotion. But remember, Hoover were the most trusted brand in the UK. You couldn't. They had everything. Nobody did any. Nobody did any. You hoovered up even if you weren't using a Hoover. But everybody was using a Hoover. They they were an amazing brand. They absolutely tore the guts out of their brand. So it's not just the loss of the money. They decimated any trust that they had. Uh, so the big disaster really was the brand was in the dirt. By the end of 1993, Hoover posted a £23.6 million loss and had a market share that had gone from 50% to 10%. Uh, in 1995, it was all over. Hoover brand was sold to the Italian company Candy. And while today you can still buy a Hoover, Who's got a Hoover? Hands up. While today you can still buy a Hoover, the brand is a shadow of its former self. Very scary indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we were around a round of applause on a on a on a on a masterclass. It's a good story. Isn't it? That's a hell of a story and a, a, a story of caution and mm. wow. Um, yeah, we wanted to end on that one. It's it's probably marked down as, as the kind of uh, quintessential sort of marketing disaster. Um, I'm I'm in the unenviable position of of sort of bringing this to a close because I, I could go on forever listening to this stuff. It's great, um, but actionable stuff and, and and kind of things that I, I think certainly I've I've learned from from these examples. Um, I think obviously really important. It's like know your audience and their channels and their preferences. Um, you know, really make sure that you're communicating with the right message at the right time to the right audience. Um, I, I think if you, you add on that as well, context is king with, with that as well. Kind of have a think about what's going on around you um, and then sort of don't plow on regardless. If, even if you think this is a fantastic idea, just take the temperature of, of the room a little bit. That's a really important mm -hmm. thing. Um, getting out of your marketing bubble. Um, you know, your world, the influences you take on board, your cultural reference point could be very, very different from your audiences. Um, so, so kind of be be, be cautious here. Um, I think also that some of the examples we've seen here, be careful how you, you sort of approach purpose-led campaigns around equality or diversity, um, because it seems a hell of a lot of brands get themselves into some terrible knots, um, especially when they don't have any kind of heritage or history. Um, in, in supporting any of these the, these movements. Um, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. Um, don't try to be too smart or too clever. Um, I, I think too funny. With, with, yeah, <laughs> be funny. Um, and then I think that final tale um, is is kind of one that we, we, we sort of all talk about a lot around kind of over-promising and under-delivering being a very, very dangerous place to be. Um, and I think Hoover kind of told that story as, as, as brilliantly and or Andrew told that story about Hoover as brilliantly as, as I've, I've ever heard anybody tell that story. So thank you for that. Um, guys, thanks for, for, for listening in. Thank you to, to Becca, to Anna and to Andrew um, for their tales of, of Halloween woe uh, this afternoon. Um, we're going to be back again in two weeks time. I think we've got something around Google's Performance Max um specifically for for b2b um so that should be an interesting one um i hope you can join us then um it'll be at the same time in two weeks time um for now thank you and i hope we see you soon thanks guys thank you, everyone. Thank you. goodbye Bye. Bye. happy halloween <laughs>